Trinity Sunday is the only Sunday in the liturgical year that's about a doctrine and not something to do with the life of Jesus. And we always kid about the fact that uh, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that uh, all preachers dread, and that's partly true. Uh, the, the issue really is not to confuse, but that's also hard. Uh, what I'm going to do is explain some things briefly, I hope, about the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, to show in, in at least the last two readings uh, where we see some form of Trinitarian formula. But I may end up in the course of this grinding some axes because I've been reading in the last year a bit of C.S. Lewis and one of his friends, Owen Barfield, who referred to something known as chronological snobbery. <laughs> And what that has to do with is people who are going to tell you, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is very late, and we haven't, we really, nobody thought of God that way. And then we got into this about the fourth century, and then we, we came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's partly true, but maybe not altogether true. And it does remind us that chronological snobbery is always with us. Here's how I uh, uh, am a victim to this. When I uh, go to Amazon and I look at a book that I'm interested in, the first thing I do is look at the front matter and see when it was published. So if it's a subject that I find interesting and I see that it was written in 1959, I say to myself, no, I, it's a little, it's old. <laughs> right? It's old. So I want to read something more recent, but more recent isn't always better. So C.S. Lewis also said, if you read a new book, which you should read new books, uh, you should also then read an old book. And what I've found out over the, my years in the ministry trying to keep up and so on is that when I read some of the old stuff, I'm surprised at how a lot of the new stuff is a rehash of the old stuff <laughs> with, with a new, uh, a new sort of Philip, you know. So it's important to at least have that in mind when we think about this uh, kind of thing. I hadn't planned to preach on the reading from Genesis, which was pretty long. Well, and uh, it, it was, and I need to say that... Um, I do want to say something about it because it's been of special interest to me in the last while. The last Episcopalian 101 was about science and religion. And I talked about a book in that class that has been, come out in the last year or two, a recent book, by uh, a man named John Walton. And he teaches at Wheaton College in Illinois which is hardly a bastion of wild-eyed liberalism, <laughs> right? And he's written a book about the creation stories in, first, in Genesis, and he talks about them. And here's what he says, so thinking about this, he says, uh, one of the things that we have to remember is that the Bible was not written to us. We believe people who are um, fairly conservative theologically, we believe that the Bible is for us, 
But in order for us to understand how that is so, there's some things that we have to know. One of them is that this account of the creation was written a long time ago by people of a different culture, and it was written in a different language than our own. I talk about this all the time, you know, and I always worry, and I need to say this again. Uh, you and I don't all have to learn Greek and Hebrew in order to be able to read the Bible. There are many excellent translations in English of the Bible from the original languages, and the one that we read in the Episcopal Church is one of the best. So don't believe that you're getting a short shrift because you're reading something from the New Revised Standard Version or some of the other respectable versions. But uh, sometimes some have said that uh, reading a, a translation is like listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony played on a harmonica. You might be able to get it, but when you see it in the original, you realize, ooh, I, you know, this is different. So uh, it's an important thing to know about that. So what John Walton says in the course of this, it's he's, he's writing about the seven days of creation. And he's saying in the ancient world, the world that produced these writings, and remember there are different views about when, they, when this account was written. It was written uh, in some people's view, uh, people who we would not probably be persuaded by who think you know, was written back uh, at the time of Moses. And most people would say, you know, it probably was written sometime around the Babylonian captivity in the 500s BCE when the Jews were taken off to Babylon and they began to write some accounts about how they thought the world came together, what their cosmology was, and how they understand their role as God's people, the people of the covenant. So one of the things that he says in there is, if you read this in the original languages, you will discover that this is a story about the building of a temple. And what that means is that the world is to be understood in the, this cosmology as God's temple. So just fast forwarding for a minute, on the seventh day, God rests. And in the ancient world, where does God rest? God rests in the temple. St. Luke's church, in the church. He's in the temple. And so we understand the presence of God, not somewhere else, but with us. Even maybe we look up, right? And we talk about the heavens and we do all of this kinds of thing. But God is present with us. Now the further addition to this is that in the course of this we're going to discover that after we see how it was made, we learn that we have stewardship over it. We, we, we learn that we're to care for the creation. And that that is our role to play. We are participants in God's plan. And so if we were going to get into a big complex thing about evolution and so forth, we would say that perhaps God has made a creation that can make itself. And so as we go along and we see how the evolutionary processes are at work, we realize that the first chapter of Genesis is not a scientific textbook. 
let's leave it there. It is not a scientific textbook about how the world was made. It was not even intended to be a scientific textbook, right? I just want to add one footnote. Another person I've been reading again, it's been a long time, is a bishop of the Church of South India by the name of Leslie Newbigin. And he wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. He'd been a bishop in uh, India, and when he retired, he came out of the reform tradition. And when they put the Church of South India together, they said, okay, we're going to unite the Methodists and the and all the uh, Reformed churches generally, and the, uh, the Anglican church was part of this, and they said, from now on, we're all going to be one church, but moving forward, all people who are going to exercise ministry, that is, ordained ministry, will be ordained by bishops. And so Leslie Newbegin became a bishop, and he uh, was there for many years. And then he came to England, to Birmingham, and in his retirement, he pastored a Reformed church in Birmingham. And he died not long ago, in his, in his, somewhere in his 90s. But he says in a lecture I heard him give a long time ago, he said, you know what, the word for, the word for science, that we use science, in a particular way to understand the scientific method also means knowledge. And people used to use science as that, use that word uh, about knowledge, how you know things and what you do. So that's an important thing to do. Maybe there's a little axe grinding in this, I don't know, but we'll just see. So let's talk a little bit about the Trinity. Um, the Trinity is something that uh, did, in fact, develop over time. There are no specific biblical references, really, to the Trinity, except two of them we read to you today from Second Corinthians and from Matthew's Gospel, where there's a triadic formula about uh, God. And there's another place where it's referred to uh, in time from Isaiah. And from Isaiah, we get holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Does that sound familiar? We say it in the liturgy all the time at the Eucharist. And it is something that uh, has been uh, taken over directly from the synagogue liturgy in the origins of the early church, right? Because most of the people who started Christianity were Jews, and they went to the synagogue. Even after Jesus was crucified, rose, and ascended, they went to the synagogue. And that's how they worshipped and what they did. And then the next day, they got together and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They celebrated the Eucharist. And this is how this begins to happen. And the processes of how we were one and then unbuckled uh, already can be seen in the New Testament, particularly in John's Gospel, the tension of the separation, uh, as James D.G. Dunn said in his book, The Parting of the Ways. How did this happen? In any case, the way in which the Trinity emerged, in my view and in the view of others, is that people began to think about how God manifested, was manifested in the world. What were the forms? And how did we understand that in terms of the thought, ca the categories of the ancient Near East? the Greek categories, and the Hebrew categories. 
how did we understand what the nature of God was. There are some biblical scholars who believe that there were Jews at the time of Jesus who believed in something like the Trinity in terms of the way they wrote and spoke, that it wouldn't have seemed uh, completely compromising the idea of the one God. But the complexities of talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, are all, uh, probably the result of the way the Greeks talked about it. And also they used words that we translate into English that didn't mean then what, what they mean now. So if you say something like person, the persons of the Trinity don't necessarily mean separate entities. For example, this is every time uh, Clark Emerson reminded me today in seminary, every time you came up with some novel explanation about the Trinity, you had committed some heresy, <laughs> right, in terms of the way in which the church thought about things. Oh, no, that's patrofaction. It's, oh, you know. <laughs> what are we going to do, you know? Or you can say, water has three forms, ice. Liquid, steam, gas. So guess what we'll get, you know, God is the block of ice, Jesus is the water, and the steam is the Holy Spirit, right? That's also a devastatingly wrong. You can't, you can't do that either, you know, in that sense. In the Greek world, in the plays, have you ever seen those masks that actors would go like this with? Okay, happy, sad, mad, glad, whatever. Right. It's still one person putting the mask on, but it is manifested in a different way. So we would say in doctrinal terms, for example, that when you're speaking of one person of the Trinity, all three are present as well. But you're speaking about the way in which uh, God is being made manifest at this particular time. So they began to say, well, how in my own spiritual yearnings and in my life and in our life together as a community, how do we understand God as Trinity and what binds them together? Now, in strict theological terms, Dr. John McQuarrie would say, um, Here's the, here are the words I'm going to use for the persons of the Trinity. I'm going to refer to God, the Father, as unitive being." excuse me, as primordial being, you know, the, the unmoved mover, thought thinking itself, right? And I'm going to speak of God the Son as expressive being, the mystery of God, primordial being, moving out to create, redeem, and sanctify. And then I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit as unitive being, the process of uniting us one to another. So one of the things the early church talked about when they used the term Trinity was to refer to the fellowship or the communion. You know all the talk in the Episcopal Church these days about radical hospitality and the importance of hospitality and understanding the church is organized uh, to be hospitable and to extend? That's not a new thing. That's something that comes from the, the church's ancient community life and self-understanding. So when we think about the Trinity in that sense, we realize that they have a shared life, and the glue that binds them together is love. And so Christian people, as they began to experience God as Trinity, understood this in their individual communities. 
They, the, the word they use to describe this is koinonia in Greek. It means fellowship, or it can mean communion. You know? I think it's a wonderful thing that week to week we receive the Holy Communion. Jesus literally dwells in us through the Spirit and the presence of God. So we're strengthened and empowered by that on a regular basis. God manifesting himself in these various ways. So they began to say, well, this must be the way we understand God. And sooner or later, uh, they began to put two and two together. Now, the great question is, uh, is your Christian faith going to rise or fall on whether or not you accept the doctrine of the Trinity? Alan Jones, in his book, Common Prayer on Common Ground, uh, a vision of Anglican Orthodoxy, says, the holy and undivided Trinity tells us that God is with us, God loves us, and God calls us without exception into communion. And so by virtue of that, we, that, this is a helpful thing, I think, for thoughtful people. But we also have to say that we're in favor of belonging and then believing. This is something that people don't talk about that much. They're beginning to. But in some uh, iterations of Christianity, the first thing you need to do is to uh, believe and you need to check the boxes or even in the most primitive form you need to go through the three or fourfold process of understanding that you're, you're a sinner understanding that Jesus is uh, here to save you accepting that saving extension of, of Jesus Christ and then saying the prayer that says you accept that and there are a lot of evangelical Christians who think everybody's got to be put through that process first and then you can't, do, you can't do anything after that. And it's completely counterintuitive for most people who live today in the postmodern world. And even if that's your brand of Christianity, there are people within their own community who are beginning to say now, you know, why do you do this? One of them is Timothy Keller who's the pastor of that very large Presbyterian church in New York City. you got 6,000 people a, a Sunday going to church in three different places. And he talks to the, in a, in a conversation he had with other members of the clergy, he said, why do you do this? Why do you insist on doing this when nobody, people are not ready for this yet? Don't do this. You need to have another starting point. And this is how you need to do it. So one of the things I think the Trinity always talks about is sort of an internal community bound by love and Christian people are an internal and external community bound together in love who wish to bring it to the world, not in specifically religious categories always, but through trying to say this is the way in which we wish to proclaim the presence of God in Christ to the world. A world where it is going to become easier for people to be good. There's a great famous icon in the Eastern Church of the Holy Trinity. And it's a painting of three people sitting in a room around a table drinking wine out of bowls. And they're there as the Trinity, three uh, persons of the Trinity, enjoying each other's company. 
right? So it's, pr it's a pretty good symbol of what it is that uh, the church was trying to get at. I mention this to you because one of the great theologians of the 20th century, Karl Rahner, a Jesuit, uh, famous, uh, said one time, uh, if the doctrine of the Trinity disappeared tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., no one would miss it. <laughs> right? And he then went on to lament that fact, but to also say that, you know, this is something that people can just get themselves all twisted up about or uh, put people's feet to the fire in terms of orthodoxy. Uh, my experience has been that people who get serious about practicing their faith and do some studying and do some living about uh, trying to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love don't find some of these doctrines to be more difficult. They find it more easy to accept. So uh, everybody who believes we have to protect the great doctrines of the Christian religion, they can take care of themselves. They will rise or fall however it goes, and maybe in every age certain ones will have uh, priority over, over others. Always if you do this, you always have to think some, in some ways about this like one of those long balloons. So if you squeeze down on one end, which means there's no, not for that, something comes out the other end, right? A bulge. And then you've got to deal with, you know, the bulge that has uh, been produced by virtue of that. So I would guess that uh, the assignment might be that um, focus on the importance of belonging and believing. See if you can see in your own uh, character uh, the Trinitarian aspect of yourself. You know, uh, uh, memory, reason, and will used to be the old way we would talk about it. That we have a threefold aspect uh, to our character, to our self. And it's by virtue of this that we began to say, well, you know, if we're made in God's image, maybe we too are Trinitarian persons. And that's how we uh, come to the world and what it is we do and how we understand our reality. So see if you can do that. And remember in this process, the end of today's gospel is one that I have always liked when the Savior says, remember that I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. <laughs>